Moses was utterly exhausted. For 40 days and 40 nights he had knelt in awestruck wonder atop the mountain of God as the Lord had delivered to him the terms of his covenant with his people Israel. When he came down from the mountain after that 40 day stretch, holding in his hands the tablets of stone on which were written by the finger of God the terms of the covenant, he found a people engaged in idolatrous worship and immoral revelry before the image of a golden calf. And as he looked upon the scene, his soul coursed with frustration and anger, and he took the tablets and he threw them down and shattered them in pieces at the foot of the mountain. He then took the golden calf and he burned it in fire and he ground it to powder and he made the people drink it in water. And after inflicting punishment upon Israel, Moses then returned to the mountain to intercede for them before the Lord, lest the Lord destroy them from the face of the earth. By the time that the Lord had turned from His anger and relented at Moses' intercession, agreeing to bring Israel into the land of promise and to leave His presence dwelling in their midst, Moses must have felt something like a crumpled and torn burlap sack that had been stuffed to the breaking point with emotion before finally bursting at the seams and spilling all of its contents on the ground. The pressure, the burden, the exhaustion of bringing an entire nation of stiff-necked and rebellious people out of the land of slavery and into the land of promise was overwhelming. Which is why I find Moses' request immediately, immediately upon receiving assurances from the Lord that yes, I will Leave my presence dwelling among you. And yes, I will bring you and this people into the land that I promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses immediately turned around and made a request of the Lord. And this request drives to the very heart of what made Moses tick. Of what he loved of what he desired more than anything else. In that moment, what did Moses need most at the very depths of his soul? He made one request. Show me your glory. Now, Moses had just spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord. Yet, His desire for communion with God had not been quenched, but had only been stoked. He wanted more of God's presence. He wanted to see more of God's glory. And God showed him just just a fleeting glimpse of his unveiled splendor. So we read in Exodus 34 that the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there on top of Mount Sinai and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And at the sight of this just glimpse of the unveiled majesty of God, and at the sound of the Lord's covenant name and His divine nature, being proclaimed over him, it says that Moses made haste to fall down, to bow his head toward the earth, and to worship. Now Moses endured 40 years of tribulation in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. 40 years of desert. 40 years of sand and rock. 40 years of blistering heat by day and 
shivering cold by night. Forty years dwelling in tents, 40 years picking his bread up off the ground every morning and discarding the remnants every night, 40 years of enduring the incessant grumbling and sin of the people he was called to lead, 40 years, how did he endure? How did Moses persevere through the tribulation And the trials that faced him for the last 40 years of his life. He had seen the glory of God. And he had heard the voice of sovereign majesty declare his holy name. I am the Lord. A God merciful and gracious. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Mercy. Moses had seen the God of sovereign mercy and justice. The same was true of Isaiah, who prophesied for half a century, 50 years, to a people who had ears but heard not, and who had eyes but saw not, and whose ears and or whose hearts rather were dull and hard. How did he endure? He saw the Lord seated upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him he saw the seraphim, the burning ones, who called to one another in ceaseless praise, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he felt the foundations of the heavenly temple shake, and he saw the throne room filled with an ethereal smoke, and he experienced the terror of the holy as the thresholds of his own heart quaked in guilt-stricken fear at the presence of the Lord. But he had also known the joy of atonement, the joy of forgiven sin. And so Isaiah could endure anything. Fifty years of ministering to a stiff-necked people, culminating at the, at the grand summation of the life of quite possibly the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Manasseh, king of Israel, took him and sawed him in two, alive. How did he endure? He had seen the Lord. Seated upon his throne, a God of sovereign mercy and justice. The same was true of Ezekiel, who prophesied during one of the most trying times in Israelite history, the ten years leading up to and the ten years following the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. How did Ezekiel endure ten years, a decade of proclaiming God's impending judgment upon an obstinate and idolatrous people, prophesying that the Lord would remove His glory from the temple and He would depart from the midst of His people and He would hand them over to a foreign nation. And then, ten years, prophesying that the glory of the Lord would return and that restoration would come and trying to give a message of hope to a broken and disillusioned people living in exile. How did he endure? Being in exile himself. Ezekiel had seen the glory of the Lord. A king enthroned. A God of sovereign mercy and justice. We could go on. Job. How did Job finally learn to trust God in his tribulation to rest in God's sovereign wisdom even in the midst of unimaginable grief and loss and pain? He saw the Lord, a God of sovereign mercy and justice. Job 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Beloved, what we need more than anything in our tribulation, in our trial, in our affliction, in our tragedy, in our loss, in our grief, in our pain, in our temptations, in our anxieties, in our depressions, 
What we need more than anything in this life, in the chaos and the confusion that swirls during our earthly existence is a vision of the glory of the Lord, a vision of a king seated upon a throne, a God of sovereign mercy and justice, a God ruling over all that His hands have made and governing them by the word of His power. That's the context of Revelation 4. That's the context of this vision of the heavenly throne room and of every vision hereafter in the book of Revelation. See, the churches of Asia Minor near the end of the first century and every other church down through the ages that has opened up their Bibles and read Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 have received this vision in the midst of tribulation. For them and for us, It is of the utmost importance that we behold a throne standing in heaven and one seated upon that throne who is not surprised and is not shaken and is not frustrated by the tribulations of this world. One who has created all things by his sovereign will and will see all things to their appointed end because all things are written in a scroll from the foundations of the world and it rests in the palm of his right hand. We need to see a God of sovereign mercy and justice. A God of peace and order who is not the least disturbed or surprised by the chaos and confusion of our lives. A king who reigns in absolute sovereignty over his kingdom. When I read Revelation 4, I'm overwhelmed by the sense of calm that pervades the entire scene. Did you feel it? Nothing's hurried, nothing's disturbed, nothing's shaken. Even the sea that is beneath his feet is as still as glass. This is a God that I can trust to bring me through the raging waters of my life and into the calm and the peace and the joy of his heavenly presence. This this God seated upon the throne, this is a God of worry-defeating, anxiety-destroying sovereignty. And I need to see Him. We need to see Him. Like Moses, we need to see His glory if we're to endure to the end. Revelation 4 and 5 opens the main body of the book of Revelation. It provides us with a glimpse into the heavenly throne room from which the judgments to come will flow. Vern Poitras, professor at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, compares this vision to a visit to the control tower of a busy international airport. See, at ground level, maybe out on the tarmac or in the terminal, one can easily be overwhelmed by the chaos and the apparent confusion swirling around you. Planes constantly coming and going, landing and taking off. Vehicles swerving everywhere, going every which way. Fuel tankers, baggage carts, security vehicles. Inside the terminals, there's throngs of people speaking a dozen different languages. Five, six, seven different terminals, 60 or more gates at every terminal, plus all of the shopping and all of the restaurants and all of the restrooms. It's difficult to wrap your mind around it all. But up in the control tower, there is order. Planes are not arriving and departing haphazardly, but according to a tightly ordered schedule. Baggage, refueling, maintenance, security, nothing's happening by chance but according to a plan. It is all scheduled, directed, supervised, governed, controlled. But as with all illustrations, even this one falls woefully short, doesn't it? Because an airport control tower is a very stressful environment. And accidents sometimes happen. There's no stress in Revelation 4. God is not frustrated. He is not stressed. There are no computer glitches. There are no 
bad weather, there's no emergencies, there's no union strikes, there's no delays, there's no cancellations. There is only a king seated upon a throne, a God of sovereign mercy and justice. What we have in Revelation 4 is not a narrative of events, but rather it's a portrait of a throne room in heaven. So I think the best way to approach this chapter is much like you would approach a painting in an art gallery. We need to know something about the context in which it was painted, why the artist painted it and what he was intending to convey through the painting. Then we need to step back and we just need to take it all in. We need to examine all of the details and, and see the contours and the colors and the, and the depth and the perspectives. And then we need to ask ourselves, how does this scene affect me emotionally? What reaction does this scene provoke with, within me? What effect did the artist intend it to have upon his audience? So with this in mind, we're going to divide this study today into three sections. We're going to look at the timing of the vision. Then we'll venture and and take it all in. We'll look at the throne room of the vision. And then finally, we'll conclude with the theme of the vision. In terms of the timing, we're really talking about two time frames. The order in which the vision was received... And the time frame within the vision itself. The time frame that the vision depicts. Now again, if we think of Revelation 4 and 5 like a painting, then the questions are, when was it painted? And what historical period does the painting reflect? Well, Revelation 4.1 provides us with clues to both of those questions. So look with me at verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. There are two identical phrases that clue us into some timing. After this, and after this, right? The first after this at the beginning, and the second after this at the end. The first refers to the sequential order in which the visions were received. Not the historical order that the events in the visions depict. If you try to take the visions as they come, as the historical order that they depict, you're going to go awry very, very quickly. It is not this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. So when John says, then I looked, he means I had this vision and then I had another vision. But the vision that he had second may take place at a different time than the vision that he had first. So the first after this is referring to the sequential order in which he received the visions. In other words, John is saying that after he had received the vision of the exalted Son of Man while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, that vision in which he received the seven messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which encompass chapter 2 and chapter 3, he then, after that, had another visionary experience in which he saw a door standing open in heaven. The voice like a trumpet, the first voice he says, he's telling us is the same voice, the same trumpet-like voice that he heard in the first vision, namely, the voice of the risen Lord Jesus. It is the Lord Jesus who summons the apostle up in the spirit, verse 2, through the heavenly doorway, and here's going to blow your mind, and into another dimension, the supernatural realm, which, as C.S. Lewis would remind us, is infinitely more real than the natural realm that we can see and taste and touch. And I would hasten to add that it's not that the natural realm, right, where we are right now, it's not that the natural realm is physical and the supernatural realm is spiritual. There is physicality in heaven. The Lord Jesus is there in His glorified body at the right hand of the throne of God. 
but it's a different kind of physical. It's a super material existence as evidenced by the different glorified physical nature possessed by Jesus after he was raised. Now the Lord Jesus in his divine summons to the Apostle John, he says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now it's a second after this and it refers to a different after this than the first after this. The second use of the phrase after this refers to the time frame of the vision itself. Now you'll notice a similarity If you're paying attention, you'll notice a similarity between Jesus' words in Revelation 4.1 and what was said in Revelation 1.1 and 1.19, where we recognized that John was using, all right, stay with me, John is using the eschatological or the end times time frame that was established by the prophet Daniel in his foundational vision of Daniel chapter 2. We saw that he uses the exact same language and phrases to introduce the book of Revelation. I will show you what must take place after this that Daniel used when he received that vision in Daniel chapter 2 of the statue that, that represented the successive world empires that that culminated in the, in the rock that was cut from the stone without hands that comes and shatters and conquers all of the previous world empires. All of the kingdoms of this world are conquered by the kingdom of God. This rock which then grows into a mighty mountain that fills the whole earth, which represents the growth of the kingdom and the, and the conquest over all of the kingdoms of this world. You hear the echoes of Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ and he will reign forever. That's the time frame of Daniel 2 and the time frame that John pulls in and applies to the book of Revelation. It's a time frame dealing with the last days. The days of the conquest of the kingdom of God. So we're clued in here as to what time frame we're looking at in Revelation 4 and 5. It's the last days when the kingdom of God has been inaugurated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the kingdom of God is spreading like a mustard seed, growing and filling the whole earth. How? By the sword? No, but by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When sinners are being ransomed and, and, and redeemed out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's marvelous light and the kingdom is expanding to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This time of the kingdom when, which will be culminated when Christ returns at his second coming to bring salvation to his people and to bring judgment upon the inhabitants of the earth. We're in this time frame known in biblical terminology as the last days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Therefore, what we will see in these visions, some has already occurred. We're 2,000 years into the last days, aren't we? Some has yet to occur. Much of what we will see in this vision and in the visions that flow out of this vision will occur over and over again throughout this period known as the last days because it is characteristic of the time of the end. The days of tribulation. The last days between the two comings of Christ. So, if you try to follow a linear chronological pattern and path through the book of Revelation, you're going to get confused and you'll go wrong. See, God stands outside of time. With Him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He created time, therefore He is not part of time. He is separate from time. He stands over time. Therefore, his existence is timeless, and there is a timeless quality to his presence in heaven. It's not completely timeless. We're delving into the realm of the mystery. Remember, this is a supernatural realm, but there is a timeless quality to it. 
So we would err then when we attempt to impose upon these heavenly scenes a fixed point of historical time, nor a linear chronological sequence. Revelation 4 and 5 is not a fixed point in time. Rather, it is a timeless vision of what is transpiring in heaven while the last days are playing out on earth. When the kingdom of God, which was inaugurated by Christ's first coming, His life, death, and resurrection, is conquering and filling the whole earth. And this is radical. I'm getting ahead of myself here. You want to know how it's conquering? It's conquering by the saints dying. It's conquering because they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they didn't love their life even when faced with death. In other words, the kingdom is conquering in the same way that the king conquered. How did the king conquer? Well, in Revelation chapter 5, you're going to see a lamb who was slain. He conquered by dying. The kingdom of God's kind of upside down, isn't it? Verse of the way things work in this world. So that's the timing of the vision. In the rest of the chapter, John describes what he saw when he entered through the heavenly door. And I think the best way to grasp this vision, like a, a, a large portrait in an art gallery, is to step back and just let our eyes scan over it and to take it in a bit, of, a bit at a time. So let's look at verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So the first thing that draws John's attention, draws his gaze, when he goes through the door is a throne which stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. Now, because the Holy Spirit appears in verse 5 and the Lord Jesus in chapter 5 and verse 6, it's evident that him who sits upon the throne is God the Father. So you have the Father who is on the throne, the Lamb who is beside the throne, and the Spirit who is in front of the throne. Trinitarian is the book of Revelation. Dennis Johnson in his book, The Triumph of the Lamb, notes that John's description of what he saw is, quote, restrained, offering nothing that could be turned into a forbidden image. In other words, John doesn't describe him who sits on the throne He gives us some vague notions of what his appearance was like. Why do you reckon he did that? Because he doesn't want you going home and drawing it. He doesn't want you going home and sculpting it. He doesn't want the second commandment being violated of making an image of him who sits upon the throne of any likeness in heaven or on earth. He writes, through John's eyes we see no features, but only color and texture conveyed in simile. His appearance was like Jasper and Carnelian. Jasper was a precious, translucent crystal. Some think it was a diamond. We know that it was clear because according to Revelation 21.11, the heavenly city is clear like Jasper. Carnelian, which is also known as Sardius, you may have Sardius in your Bible, was a precious stone with a fiery blood red color. And around the throne was a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald, which is green. So the effect of beholding him who is seated upon the throne, him who dwells in unapproachable light, is one of radiant glory. He wraps himself in light. The throne and the precious stones speak of God's sovereign majesty, while the rainbow, the sign which God gave Noah after the flood, speaks to his saving mercy. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who are these 24 elders? who surround the throne of God. Well, the question has engendered much debate, but we need to 
We need to land the plane somewhere because they're going to appear in nearly every vision that proceeds forward. There are three feasible options in my mind. So let's do a little bit of biblical interpretation here. The first option is that they are a priestly order of angels. This view recognizes that the earthly temple was but a copy or a replica of the heavenly temple, the heavenly throne room. We read that of that idea in Hebrews 8.5 and Hebrews 9.23 and also Exodus 25.40 where God tells Moses to construct the tabernacle after the pattern which he had seen. So there is a real temple of which the earthly temple was but a shadow and copy. For example, just as in the earthly temple there was a mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant that was guarded on either side by golden cherubim, so in the heavenly temple there is a real throne of grace that is guarded by real angels. Think of Isaiah 6-2. I saw the Lord seated upon the throne, high and lofty, and the train of His robe filled the temple. On other sides above Him there were angels, seraphim, having six wings, right? Just as in the earthly temple there was a golden lampstand with seven lamps, so in the heavenly temple, look at Revelation 4-5, before the throne there is burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. You get the point. Just as in the earthly temple there was a golden altar of incense, so in the heavenly temple there are martyrs beneath the altar. There's an altar. Well, in the earthly temple, David appointed 24 orders of priests, 24 orders of Levitical gatekeepers, and 24 Levitical worship leaders. You can read about it if you have time. 1 Chronicles 24, 25, and 26. So this view says, all right, the heavenly throne room or temple is the reality of which the earthly temple was but a copy, and in the earthly temple there were 24 orders of priests, so in the heavenly temple there are 24 elders who are a priestly order of angels who minister and serve and and perform ceaseless worship in the presence of God. Makes sense, doesn't it? I think so. But there's a second view that makes sense, which is that These 24 elders are a symbolic representation of the glorified church. That is, that they represent the totality of the saints of God from both the Old and the New Covenants. In other words, when John sees the 24 elders, that's his way of symbolizing what he actually sees, which is the glorified church surrounding the throne. This was the view of the author of the hymn, Holy, 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 who said, All the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns before the glassy sea, right? Well, he may be right, but it's the 24 elders who cast their crowns before the throne, before the glassy sea. So in this view, those 24 elders represent the glorified church in heaven. This view derives from the fact that in Revelation 21, 12 to 14, the gates of the wall surrounding the new Jerusalem bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And on the foundations of the wall, there are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you take them together, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 and 12 is 24. So they represent then the totality of the saints of God, the church of the Old Covenant and the church of the New Covenant, together all the saints adoring God, casting down their crowns before the glassy sea. I think this view is feasible and is supported by the fact that the 24 elders sit upon thrones. Revelation 2, 26-27 and 3.21. They are clothed in white garments. Revelation 3, 4 through 5 and 18. And they wear golden crowns. Revelation 2.10 and 3.11, in other words, all of which are promises which Jesus just made to the saints of the seven churches. There is one problem with this view, though, and that is that twice in the book of Revelation, the 24 elders speak as if they are distinct from the church. 
For instance, in Revelation 5, when they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power. And, no, I'm sorry. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people, not us, them, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He does it again in Revelation 7. So the first view is that they are angels who function like the priests of the earthly temple. The second view is that they are symbolic of the glorified church. The third view is kind of a hybrid of those first two, which says that they are angelic representatives of the church on earth. In other words, in much the same way that there are angels representing the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, you remember that, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And we saw that there was somehow or another, there was an angelic representative of this earthly church. And in the same way that there were angels that represented the nations of the earth in Daniel 10 through 12, so, according to this view, there are angelic heavenly beings, okay, angels in heaven who represent the church on earth. According to G.K. Beale, who holds this view, if the four living creatures are heavenly representatives of all animate life throughout creation, as most interpreters think, then the elders are probably heavenly representatives of God's people. Now, if I lost you in that, come back to me now. Which of those three views is correct, I don't know. You're not going to hear me say that very often. Because I'm very opinionated when it comes to biblical interpretation. But on this one, I tell you, I don't know. I think all three of them are, are possible. That they're angelic priests. That they are the glorified church. Or, or that they are heavenly angels who represent the earthly church. I lean towards the third, but I could be persuaded of any of the three. Verse 5. From the throne, we'll come back to the 24 elders in just a bit. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The thunder and the lightning emanating from the throne draws your mind back to the thunder and the lightning emanating from the top of Mount Sinai. And it represents the terror of divine judgment. This judgment will be meted out as the visions progress. As I stated earlier, the seven burning torches of fire are the seven spirits of God and they represent the Holy Spirit. I would refer you back to chapter 1 and verse 4. And it's the heavenly reality of which that seven-candled menorah, the golden lampstand in the holy place, was but an earthly replica. Before the throne, John says, there was a, something like, not, not that there was a sea of glass, but there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. The best explanation I've heard on this verse is that in biblical symbolism, the sea represents the domain of evil. For instance, in Revelation, the beast emerges out of the sea, Revelation 13.1. And we're told that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sea. In the apocalyptic vision of Daniel 7, Daniel sees the four winds of heaven churning up the sea. And out of the sea come the four great beasts that emerge from it, which are four successive regimes or world rulers who oppress and make war on the saints of the Most High. So I think the sea represents the evil of this age... And from our perspective, looking up, or maybe in the midst of it, the sea looks as if it's churning and swirling and just a, a mass of chaos and confusion as, as war upon war and nation comes against nation and there are pestilence and plagues and all manner of evil permeating this, this world and this age. From God's perspective... The sea is calm and clear as glass. God is not startled, nor is He shaken by the fomenting waters of this world. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Alright, so who are these four living creatures? Well, the best way to understand them is that they are angels who have been created by God and stationed at the four points toward the four winds of heaven stationed around his throne to reflect his majesty and his glory in much the same way that ancient throne rooms would have carved lions there before the throne to reflect the majesty of the king. But God's sentries are not carved of stone. They are living and active. They bear resemblance to the cherubim of Ezekiel 1 and 10 and to the seraphim of Isaiah 6. But they have differences in certain features. You may wonder why. Are there different four living creatures? No. Vern Poitras says, Any vision of God in his throne room is less like a photograph than an artistic impression. It is a vision which symbolizes rather than photographs the realities it represents. Symbols show us the meaning of things rather than merely their physical appearance. I'm trying to lay a foundation for understanding visions as we proceed through the visions of Revelation. It's not a photograph. It's like an artistic impression, a scene full of symbols, full of imagery, full of meaning. So what is the meaning of these symbols? Well, I think the four living creatures reflect God's attributes, Their stations on each of the four sides of the throne toward the four winds of heaven represent divine omniscience. There is no place where he does not see and does not know. That they are full of eyes in front and behind speak to God's, I'm sorry, their stations speak to his omnipresence, right? He is everywhere. Their eyes and full of eyes in front and behind speak to God's omniscience. He knows everything, sees everything. The creature like the lion speaks to his majesty, the creature like the ox to his might, the creature like a man to his dominion over creation, or perhaps his reason and wisdom, and the creature like an eagle in flight, his speed, swift to save and swift to judge. And just like the seraphim in Isaiah's vision, these six-winged angels ceaselessly call out in praise of the holiness and sovereignty and eternality of God. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So in response to the four living creatures, to their ceaseless worship and praise, the 24 elders, whoever they are, prostrate themselves before him who is seated upon the throne, and they cast their crowns before the throne, indicating that what honor and glory and dominion has been granted to them, to the persevering and faithful saints, if indeed they are representative of the saints, That honor and glory and dominion that is promised to us if we persevere to the end, it's not inherent in us. It is given. It is delegated. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, and to Him belong the glory forever and ever. In in other words, Jesus says to you, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So that if you are faithful unto death and Jesus places the crown of life on your head, the immediate impulse of your being will be to take the crown off of your head and cast it back at his feet because the only reason that you were faithful unto death is because he kept you faithful to the end. It came from him. Isn't it amazing and astounding that God is going to so richly reward the perseverance that he himself gave you? There is no look at me in heaven. How on earth did I end up here? 
All that we have, all that we are, life, breath, redemption, faith, perseverance, it is all owing to the sovereign grace and power of God. And the 24 elders declare that our Lord and God is worthy to receive the glory and the honor and the power for He created all things and by His sovereign will they existed and were created. So in these two songs of worship, God is eternally worshipped for who He is. Holy, sovereign, eternal. And He is eternally worshipped for what He has done in creation, as we'll see next week, in redemption. Well, now that we've examined the vision in detail, I want to conclude by stepping back and exploring what it means. What's the theme? What is this heavenly scene intended to convey and how does it impact my life? It's meant to impact your life or else Jesus wouldn't have revealed it. What effect does viewing the throne room of God have upon my life, my faith, my emotions, my soul? I'm going to suggest one theme. One overriding theme. There may be more, but this is the point. The throne of God is the beginning and end of all creation and all history. I want you to notice how the throne of God is the center of everything in this vision. It's like the hub of a wheel. It's the first thing that John sees. A spectrum of color, a clear luminescence, a dazzling radiance, a refulgent splendor emanating out from him who is seated upon the throne, creating a rainbow that surrounds the throne. Surrounding the throne are four living creatures whose praise is directed back towards him who sits upon the throne. Also surrounding the throne are 24 elders who lie prostrate face toward, guess what? The throne and him who sits upon the throne. They cast their their crowns towards the throne. And as we will progress through the vision, we will see that in the right hand of him who sits upon the throne is a scroll. And by the end of Revelation 5, him who sits upon the throne and the lamb who is before the throne will be worshipped by concentric circles emanating out from the throne. First, there are the four living creatures, and then there are the 24 elders, and then there are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels, and then finally, at the end of Revelation 5, every creature in heaven, on earth, and the sea, and all that is in them are declaring the worth and the praise and the glory of God. What might that be meant to convey? All of creation and all of history proceeded out from the throne and all of creation and all of the history are directed back towards the throne. It is the source and the goal, the beginning and the end of all of creation and of all of time. For truly from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And to Him belongs the glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said. Which means that your life is not a churning cauldron of confusion and chaos. You are not swept along and carried away by the winds and waves of the sea. This world in which we live is as ordered and calm in the eyes of God as the sea beneath His feet. The course of your life is as charted and detailed as the scroll in His right hand. So behold the glory of the Lord of hosts, the King who sits upon the throne, and rest in His divine sovereignty. He is a God of sovereign mercy And justice, who has mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and has compassion upon whom he will have compassion, and he from the foundations of the world has chosen to have mercy upon you. In Revelation 4, he has shown you his glory. So, in the midst of your trials and and tribulations, afflictions, and grief, worries, and anxieties, respond as Jesus. Or as Moses did. Fall down before him and worship. Our God and Father. I thank you that you have shown us your throne. I pray. 
that all that we have seen in this portrait of the throne room will come home to our hearts with all of the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to calm the winds and the storms that threaten to blow us off course. Our lives are ordered. They are governed by a good and sovereign and providential king. And there is no detail of our lives or of this entire world that has been left to chance. I pray that you would build the faith of your people through this vision of yourself seated upon the throne. And that you would draw out from your people the, cra- the praise and the honor and the glory that you deserve. Create in our midst today a worshiping, faithful, joyful people. And First Baptist Nick's, I invite you to join in with the praise and worship that is going on right now before the throne of God. And like your representatives, the 24 elders, I invite you to fall down on your face and cast your crown before the feet of him who lives forever and ever. Would you stand to your feet? The impact of this message, the impact of this chapter is to make it well with your soul. How can it not be well with your soul when God is on His throne? So if it is not well with your soul, look, look, and behold Him who is seated on the throne. This vision was given that you might behold Him, so look at Him and fall down before Him and worship. God, Create a worshiping people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.